0: It's Ben Reiser, welcome to another episode A sort of... Um, uh, uh, it's been a while, I guess, since our last episode of 70 movies we saw in the 70s, right, Scott Lucas?
1: It has, been Reiser, but we've been watching a lot of 70s movies, I feel like, and we haven't really been able to decide on one. Uh, but you have been really busy putting together a film festival, so your mind might not have been... Just in the 70s in the past, I don't know, (laughs) two, three weeks or something.
0: No, I mean, it it was, you're right. I haven't had any time to really watch stuff. You had pitched uh, us on the idea of either doing, because it kind of was your turn, because the last episode we did was Smile with the Healy Brothers. God, that feels like a month ago. Maybe it was. Yeah. Um, Might have been. (laughs) uh, And well, we got lots of nice feedback about that episode. Which makes me think, oh, maybe we need to just have guests all the time. <laughs> but, I
1: I got a, I got my Blu-ray, uh, so that looks really nice. It's sitting over there. Nice package.
0: Yeah, you know, John Hertzberg sent me free copies of both those movies. I don't know. And, and, and I... It, you know, I don't I don't know why he sent me the, the uh, Jeremy one, because I didn't really have anything to do with that, but it was very nice of him, maybe because we did an episode on it. And then yeah. he sent me the Smile one, and I was also like, whoa, this is so nice. Why am I getting this? And then I realized, oh, I actually worked on this fucking thing. You did, yeah. Well, I mean, I recorded the commentary track for Jim and Pat, So, but I keep forgetting that. Not that I think I actually am credited in the anywhere on the packaging, but that's
1: fine. Well, it looks great. I wish I had it before we did the episode on Smile, because I felt pretty useless on that episode. And and that brings me to this episode. I'm going to be pretty useless on this one because uh, this is going to be the second episode uh, in a row with a movie that I have almost zero history with.
0: Yeah. Well, that's okay because... Um I didn't really do much prep for this either except reading through the Wikipedia thing and um also um then like clicking on all the sort of actors cuz I thought oh this will be fun we're going to do Black Sunday as everyone who's already listening to this knows because you've seen the episode title and whatever stupid shit I've read Mario,
1: <laughs> Mario Bava's Black Sunday Mario
0: Bava's Black Sunday Have you seen Mario Bava's Black Sunday? Oh I have yeah.
1: Mm. I've been watching a lot of giallo movies lately so uh but that's not one of them. Anyway I digress.
0: But we can talk about John Frankenheimer and we yes, can we talk can. about um we can talk about Thomas Harris. We can talk about Ernest Lehman, Lamont. How do you say
1: Lehman? yeah, I don't know. That that's a good question. But we're doing Black Sunday nineteen seventy seven.
0: Yeah, we're doing the Super Bowl Black Sunday. We're doing the Goodyear Blimp Black Sunday. We're doing Bruce Dern Black Sunday. And it what? occurred to me a couple minutes what? ago.
1: What? <laughs> what is me, this Super Bowl?
0: Yeah, what is this Super Bowl? What is this Goodyear blimp? What does it do? Robert Shaw really typed against, cast against type,
1: as not an a Israeli fan.
0: Mossad agent. Um, and that line where he says, What is this? What does this blimp do?" It's, that sort of defies belief. Like, okay, dude, you didn't. You're not an alien. You didn't land here from outer space. I appreciate that you don't know American football, but I think you might know what a Goodyear blimp is doing.
1: Right. And he's a member of an intelligence agency.
0: Be intelligent. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But somehow, I mean, this is a movie that's got a lot of questionable sort of ethnic stereotype, third-rate accents um, and and vernacular. Mm -hmm. The Japanese boat captain, uh, the dude from The Godfather.
1: Right.
0: uh, and Robert hey, that's Shaw... that's how he talks. Yeah, that is how he talks. Uh, but Robert Shaw... Um, I, he pulls it off to me. I don't know. I kind of buy... Against all odds, I sort of buy him as an Israeli agent.
1: Robert Shaw is a man for all seasons.
0: Mm. Oh, one thing I discovered today was... He was in a man for all seasons? He might have been, but he yes. Was in a, he was. was in a
1: man for all seasons. But he... Yes.
0: Um, but more than that it's he uh, his um his his career started a lot earlier than i than I realized like by the time he does jaws, he's sort of at the tail i mean he's already had like two decades worth of movies behind him
1: right I think man for all seasons was in sixty six um, yeah and even that I think and, is maybe
0: ten years into his career
1: yeah i mean he's he's probably my favorite bond villain in from Russia with love. Mm. uh mm-hmm. he plays grant he was really fucking terrifying in that movie
0: yeah he his he made his film debut in a movie called the cherry orchard in nineteen forty seven but he's Jeez. also in he's got a very small role in the lavender hill mob which is nineteen fifty one so hmm i don't know that one lavender hill mob no it's one of so. those ealing comedies like uh oh, okay all right uh with al Guinness and Say no All more, those dudes. Yeah. <laughs> say no more. <laughs> say yeah. no more. So, um, uh, so Black Sunday. So, so yeah, we were gonna, we, you know, you had pitched Harry in your pocket, which I watched, and was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I don't know what there is. Yeah, to say I, about I was this. really
1: into pitching Harry in your in your pocket because you know of Coburn and the fact that it seemed like Michael Saracen was everywhere back then, and uh, Trish Devere, isn't it? I know you've got a thing for Trish Devere. Well, in that um, movie I do. So, uh, and, and the thing was, and I, I remember it being the first time I ever saw a movie that ha- had, t- tonight's film contains mature themes and you know, might not be suitable for younger audiences. And I was like, what is this? And it doesn't really seem like it's that big of a deal when we watch it now.
0: But, well, um, it's the pickpocketing thing. like they didn't want kids to get into that whole pickpocketing racket.
1: Right. That's what I think so yeah, I think so too, right.
0: The, the, that's um, let's just talk about that movie for a second is that the the, the sort of central conceit that they have that the, these guys are like big time they have a big time sort of criminal racket going on, but it's all based around pickpocketing, which just seems like a lot of work for a very little amount of money that you wind up with. And a lot of danger. It's like, why why are they even doing this stuff? It's like, you know, <laughs> they go through all this shit and at the end of the day, they got like a grand between the four of them.
1: Right. They've got like a grand and and a whole lot of montages.
0: Yeah. And Trish Vandeveer, for once, here's my thing about Trish Vandeveer is that this is the only movie I can remember her in where she really looks young and sexy. I mean, she I think a lot sexy of it in, is in uh in what's
1: in Where's Papa? <laughs>
0: She's not in. Where's Papa? Oh well, then you're thinking cut Madeline this out. Kahn, but that, but, but that's, Madeline but, Kahn is in Where's Papa? Oh no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of What's Up, Doc? You're right. Trish Van Devere is in. Okay. Where's Papa? Thank you. You're God, absolutely man. right. God
1: after, damn it! After that smile debacle, I don't want to get anything wrong on this one.
0: There was no smile debacle. You were great in that episode. And really, you know, I, I, I'm the same way. If the Heelys are in the room, I've got almost nothing to say. I sort of had to like fight those my guys, way into that conversation.
1: Those guys are fucking tough.
0: Yeah. But it made me think, uh, oh, we should invite some other people who maybe aren't as tough to c- compete with. I mean, we should bring them back, certainly. Yeah. But, you know, it occurs to me that the dude who hooked us up. Says, Mike. Mike Mike Vanderbilt. Mike Vanderbilt. He's got good. a podcast these days. With this guy, Adam Karsten, where they do these, they talk about these double features that they found that played Chicago back in the back in the day, in the 60s mm. and 70s, I think, called Windy City Ballyhoo. Um, so they might be fun to bring on for a 70s yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely. That would be great. And there's some other guys I know who do some podcasts that might be fun to do. But yeah. anyway, that's beside the point. So, uh, so you're seeing Black Sunday for the first time this week. That's right. And what'd you think? Uh, (laughs) I don't like the sound of this.
1: eh, You you know, I mean, I always kind of, I've always been aware of this movie, but I never really pulled the trigger on it because I I, I think I've always thought of this as kind of a dad movie, you know? Maybe it's because of the football or maybe it's just because, not, not my dad, but, you know, other dads, you know? Or maybe it's just because... You know, dads are fascinated by Tom Clancy and all that CIA shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know those Jack Ryan movies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I feel like you know Tom Thomas Harris, especially with this book, kind of fits that bill. Um, although I do want to say, "Clear and Present Danger" is a kick-ass fucking
0: movie. See, I watched "Clear and Present Danger" this week as well, um, and I think it's, it's such good. a great movie. I think this is a better movie, but I think that's a good movie. Uh, oh, I love
1: that movie. When he, he goes in there and he's, how dare you, sir? It's like, how dare you? You can't come in here and bark at me like a junkyard dog. I'm the president. Of, you know, of oh, It's so good. Uh, What's that guy's name? So, so Donald Moffat? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think you're From right about thing. that. From
0: the thing. From the thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. As, as soon as you... What does he say? He, <laughs> I, he's got the best line uh, in the thing, right? I'd like yeah. not to be yeah. tied to this fucking chair. So yeah, there's kind of a, like a dad movie thing with this, hmm. um, which is probably why I avoided it. And uh, and you know, watching it, I was kind of you know, I mean, it's well made, and I have a lot of respect for John Frankenheimer. Um, but but you know, I just kept thinking about better movies. And as and as soon it was as o- soon as it was over. I was watching it on Amazon and popped up Parallax View. So <laughs> I started watching that and I couldn't stop. And I just, you know, everything about Parallax View was just better. You know, the the compositions, the photography, I mean, it might be Gordon Willis's best work. Um, but the thing that's interesting about this movie, and I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away. But the thing that's interesting about this movie is it's kind of like uh, Frankenheimer kind of pioneered or at least transformed the political thriller with the Manchurian Candidate in 62. But in this decade, he seems to have been eclipsed by the likes of Pacula and Friedkin. And it almost feels like he's trying to catch up with this movie. Whereas those movies are just, just rolling rings around them. Like everybody in this movie reminds me of a part of some other movie that they were in, you know, like Bruce Stern reminds me of him in coming home. Martha Keller reminds me of her marathon man, William Daniels parallax view, Michael Gazzo and, you know, Godfather, you know, it's just like, so I I kept getting that. Yeah. But I I don't have that, that the history with this movie, probably the way you do. So,
0: right. Right, because some, some, if not all, of those movie roles that you're talking about came after this movie.
1: And no, 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 they, I looked them up; they, they all came before. Wait, I mean, maybe not they, coming home. Maybe not coming that home. Coming home
0: is that's the one that that you're wrong about. It, coming okay. home was the year after.
1: But Marathon Man, Parallax View, and Godfather.
0: Uh, right. Well, it turns out that Robert Evans produced Marathon Man and Black Sunday, so that's why there's the Martha Keller and both of them playing basically the same role. Uh, not not really, but I mean, pretty similar roles. But I think this is a better yeah. movie than Marathon Man. Um, oh, you do? I do. I totally do. Wow. I disagree. Yeah, I think it's because I, I. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I, th- I think a lot of it is. You're right. You didn't see it at the time, and I saw well, Marathon it as a kid. Man.
1: Marathon Man, I didn't see at the time either. I yeah, just but you saw it before this. For,
0: oh, I saw when? it for the
1: first time last year, and I was I was knocked out. And I was really scared Dude, like that scene in the, uh, in, in the uh, apartment I was like, wow, this movie is really pretty scary To say nothing of the dentist
0: part but, uh, right. but yeah, okay, go on Yeah, I think Marathon Man is like, it's fine mm-hmm. This one I think is sort of an unheralded Who directed Marathon Man? Um. Yeah, it's a good question who knows if I well, it was written it. by William Goldman. And did did right. he write the novel as well? I don't know. Um, John, uh, Schlesinger, John Schlesinger. John Schlesinger. That's right. That's right. Another. Well, John. here's here's my thing about John Frankenheimer. Okay, is that he's not a director that I think of a lot, and he had a long career, and I think he had. I mean, I think he he made enough. Movies that I think are pretty great that I'm like, yeah, right on. Uh, but he also made a mo- bunch of movies that I don't like, and there are some movies mm-hmm. that he made that people like a lot that I don't like. Like I know a lot of people yeah, who really are into Ronin. Yeah,
1: I agree with you. I do.
0: And I'm not. And then, um, um, but here's here's the thing with him and Friedkin. I was thinking about today that that I I feel like in the '70s. Um, they're sort of going back and forth, and okay, yes, the French Connection is probably is 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 you know objectively a better movie than the French Connection Two, which Frankenheimer directed, right? But I there's not a single sequence in all of French Connection that I love and and adore as much as the final five minutes of French connection two, where Gene Hackman is desperately running after a boat and he's on yeah. the land <laughs> and the movie's basically over and he's defeated. And you're just like, wow, this is, you know, and another movie where the French guy is going to get away. Yeah. Um, and I just, I think that's the greatest sort of foot running suspenseful and climax and the last you know i don't want to i won't even reveal what happens in the last second of the movie but it's just one of those perfect endings that i think people have been chasing ever since and so hackman could run yeah and here's this thing about frankenheimer i think the same thing happens with robert shaw in this movie where he gets a physicality out of out of robert shaw and this is three years after jaws and you can't imagine the Robert Shaw of Jaws running the way the Robert Shaw of Black Sunday runs. And this and the, and yes, some of the stuff at the end on the blimp seems like it's a stunt man, but a lot of it doesn't. And there's some stuff where where Robert Shaw is kind of rolling around on the right. <laughs> on this thing trying to get this His hook. His shirt into is the blimp. coming up. His shirt's yeah. coming off. Yeah. And I'm like, Robert Shaw, man. Look at you with your physicality. Yeah. Um so you know, I think that I think maybe Frankenheimer had a way with these middle aged guys and getting them. I think he was smart to put these sort of slightly over the hill guys in these action hero roles, yeah because it really feels like ooh they're making an effort, and I don't know if this guy's gonna make it uh, and you know, acting is an older man's game it, yes as we learned last night yeah um but um but i but i you know, so I, I saw this movie on TV when I was a kid uh, in the seventies um, yeah. or early eighties, but late probably it was on late all 70s. the time. It seemed like, yeah. And I would catch again. I wouldn't catch the whole thing. I'd catch bits and pieces of it. But I, but every time I did, it seemed to be another set piece. And I do think. And a friend of mine was. I went on Facebook last week and I was like, you know, Black Sunday doesn't really hold up the way I hoped it would. And and what I meant when I said that was that. As a kid, I felt like this is a really terse, no nonsense, straight ahead thriller. Like you know, it's like wow, this feels real to me, even though it's this preposterous plot. But nobody's playing it up. There's no hamminess now. And you know, there's nothing overly dramatic. It's just sort of like hitting you, uh, like a real lean, mean action thriller. Now watching it today or and this week, I'm like, well, that's not true. Martha Keller is doing this crazy eye acting throughout the whole movie Mm-mm. to the point where I don't even understand what her character is supposed to be. She seems schizophrenic. She's half the time, she's this ruthless killer. And the right. other half, she seems freaked out every time Bruce Dern even opens his mouth. She's like yeah. terrified yeah, yeah. to be in the room with him. She doesn't know what he's up to. And I'm like, that's not your character. What are you doing with your eyes? Why do you look so scared all the time? What's the matter right, with you? Right. Um, and And Bruce Dern... I think it's a great performance, but it's a it's a hammy over the top uh performance.
1: Which, which I don't mind. You know, no. so many people will, will give you that guff about uh Al Pacino being an over actor and I don't buy that shit at all. I don't mind that kind of stuff. I'm I'm down with it. I'd rather that than a boring
0: performance. a woman, I, I think, you're into are into sensible woman? Uh you know,
1: it's it it's okay. But I mean I you know, I love uh um, I love everything else he does in the 80s you know I, I think he's, yeah. in the 90s I think he's great um, what about in the 2000s what
0: about I like 88 minutes that kind of stuff
1: yeah no I'm thinking more Carlito's way I'm starting to get oh yeah get I mean Carlito's way is great uh, yeah. but but heat heat you know people are like oh he's overacting in heat and I'm like no he's not he's great he's great I, 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 and you know I, I love the quotes in that movie but the I don't know if I think this movie is pared down and, and tight and lean and terse. I think it's way well, it's too not. long.
0: It is too long. It's ridiculously long.
1: I mean, even the Look parallax you, like, view, well, it, the parallax view is like 40, 45 minutes shorter than this movie, you know? Yeah. And it just fucking moves. And, you know, I, I would have guessed that parallax view would be the much more um, arty, pretentious movie but the way it moves so fast it just leaves this movie in the
0: dust. Well, this movie I do think that this movie takes almost an hour before it really kicks in. I think this movie kicks in when Martha Martha Keller goes to the hospital. I think right. once once that happens and she and and she does what she does with Robert Shaw's partner, right. then I think okay, now this movie, now you got my interest. And right. I think I think and from that. Shaw's
1: in. interest as well.
0: Yes. Right. Right. And then I think it's I think that's a great set piece. And then I think it's a series of pretty great set pieces. The their their testing of the bomb in that uh, warehouse with that guy mm-hmm. when they land the plane. I think that's a right. great sequence. The the hotel shootout when they are on the trail of Martha Keller and her and her handler oh and then yeah go ahead
1: and they're following him down the street and he's is that what you're talking about
0: yeah and he's got the late the, he grabs a girl and he's right running down the alley yeah talk about heat right yes yeah. and it's preheat well that, yeah well right. i would what i will say about this movie is that in retrospect it's not as it's not as tight as i thought it was it's not as just straight ahead I, you know you're right i think they could hack the first hour off this movie and it would be a lot better
1: but to be fair they're going for a novelistic approach right right yeah. to be fair to them right
0: yeah yeah but i will say that it it seems like it's it's it however many years later this is 30 years 35 40 years later it seems very influential it seems like people were cribbing from this movie up until now like all of these dopey Homeland type shows mm-hmm. take a season or a season and a half to tell the exact same story that this mm-hmm. film tells in two and a half hours. So, in a way, it is lean and mean um, compared right. to all these compared to all these TV shows. It took like Twenty Four. There, there would be no Twenty Four without this movie. There would be no Homeland without this movie. I think Spielberg, I feel, is watching this movie when he makes Munich i think that some of the character moments when straw is in the hospital and he's confessing to his partner that he thinks he's had enough and he's this old dog and he sees both sides of the question right that stuff that's the stuff you hear all through munich well the the
1: book was inspired by the munich massacre so i mean Mm -hmm. i was thinking that as well but then when you realize that they're both basically about the same thing black sunday and spielberg's munich you know there's gonna be some uh, crossover right
0: yeah but I mean I don't think that I think Thomas Harris is using that, is using black the black September movement in a much more sort of like yeah this is my inspiration but he's not really yeah he's not really trying to retell that story in a fictional no. he's just using it as a starting off point right. whereas Spielberg I think I think Munich is sort of I don't know if it's really based on real people it's I, it's
1: based on that like the, I, I thought it was I thought it was based on the the seventy two Olympics thing. That well,
0: it's the, it's the it's it's what Israel is is doing in retaliation for the seventy two Olympics. Right, and, right. And right. but I think that Munich is sort of maybe the secret history of what they did. Right. Uh, in, in response to that, whereas this yeah. is this isn't really. I mean, this is like a goofy. You know. No,
1: it uses it as a jumping off point. But right. but since they both movies have the same jumping off point. that They they inevitably, I think, remind you of each other. But right. you're but right. You know, Spielberg could have been like, I'm going to get some Black Sunday into Munich.
0: Yeah, but it's, but it's not so much the Black... Right. Well, yes, you're right. But I think that it's the... I think, and it's a little interesting to me, you know, like, hmm, this is curious, that, that in both of these movies, it's these Israeli Mossad guys who seem to have these moral quandaries... Mm-hmm. That that you don't get in in any of the Tom Clancy, well you sort of get, but you get it in a bullshit way in the Tom Clancy stuff, and 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 you don't really get even in Homeland you don't get it as much. You don't get you don't get people verbalizing this like I don't know if I'm doing if what I'm doing is right, you know, and and morally I'm not sure if I should be killing these people that I think are about to kill us, and like it seems it seems a little too um, similar. These these two the, the the conversations that Eric Bana has in, in the and the sort of inner life that he has, which, which is much expanded in Munich. But I mean Robert the fact that Robert Shaw is saying those same things back in seventy seven, in this movie is is a little curious to me.
1: And makes who's that right. coming from? Of the three writers, do you think that's Ernest Lamont the most, or do you think that's the other two guys?
0: Well, I think it's, I mean, what I wanted to do this week, and I did not have time to do, was grab the book, the Thomas Harris book, and read that and figure out how much of that is in the book. And I really wanted to read it because I wanted to understand Martha Keller's character in the book because I wanted to figure out are they... Is it the is it the screenwriting that sort of botches what her character is supposed to be and there's or there subtleties that they weren't able to get into this or is it really just her performance which fucks up what her character should be or is well, her or is her character supposed to be sort of like yeah schizophrenic schizo- back and right. forth like that
1: I mean there's three writers and that's always a good sign that something did not go right you know? right
0: yeah. Now, for me, Ernest Le Mans, or Leman was a guy that... He was one of the first screenwriters that I ever knew about and, right. like, knew his name. And it was because of North by Northwest, which was one of the first films that I ever saw in a movie theater. Yeah. Um, and then I think I was like, any time I saw his name after seeing North by the Northwest, I was like, oh, this has got to be good because he wrote this.
1: That was his only original screenplay. Yeah, that's weird, right? Yeah. Interesting.
0: And he I mean, said, I- he said, like... uh I'm going to write Hitchcock, the ultimate Hitchcock movie. And I guess he kind of did.
1: Totally. Totally. Took all the best stuff from 39 Steps and Foreign Correspondent. And it's great.
0: You know, another thing I read on Wikipedia today <laughs> was, um, was uh, as far as homages to his films, Quentin Tarantino has said right. in interviews saw- at the sequence in Kill Bill Volume 1 where Daryl Hannah attempts to kill the bride in disguise as a nurse is an homage to the similar sequence in black Sunday. Um, and more specifically, he said that the sequence in his film is done with split screens because that's an homage to the trailer for black Sunday, which apparently shows shots from that sequence.
1: Did you watch the trailer?
0: I haven't yet.
1: Have you? Yeah. Yeah. It's got the split screen stuff, but I always thought it was just a a De Palma rip. So, I mean, I, I had no idea.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and I was thinking about it. I feel like the cinema history is littered with these uh Catholic uh hospital nurses who are mm-hmm. villainous. I feel like in just about every omen movie there's some evil nurse who's really working for the devil.
1: Right. The nurses in Exorcist Three are always Yes, pretty, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that movie.
0: Yeah. So, so anyway, so then there's, so so, so then there's that, uh, heat style, um, uh, shootout, uh, by the hotel, another great, um, set piece. Um, and then of course there's the last 20 minutes, which I think, I I still think are masterful. And I'm like, oh, this is, I remember seeing the end of the movie on TV and just being, this is the most suspenseful thing Mm. I've ever seen. Mm. All that stuff with the blimp. Going to the stadium, coming back, landing, uh, the the dude on the ground crew who's like trying to figure it out and then Bruce Turner. Yeah,
1: I mean, I remember all that from the commercials and, you know, like tonight, Black Sunday and, you know, either I'd fall asleep or get bored and walk away. But, but, you know, that that shot is, I don't know, shy of iconic, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty cool.
0: Um, I'll say the one thing that 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 immediately like like sent shivers through my body and I think does hold up is the John Williams score. I just think, yeah, it's pretty good, right? It's pretty fucking great, and you know, I feel like John Williams has done so many great scores and is such so ubiquitous you know mm-hmm. when it comes to all these blockbusters that It's hard to not just sort of take him for granted and just be like, yeah, 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 John Williams, but let's talk about Jerry Goldsmith and let's talk about Ennio Morricone and let's talk about all these other people, Bernard Herrmann, all this shit. But I don't think that's fair because I think fucking Williams, man, I mean, this score is fucking fantastic and it's pretty close to Jaws. I mean, he could take like that same four notes and just sort of turn it around a little and it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a whole new fucking masterpiece uh, you know, little riff that I can use for but the it, whole movie.
1: It's also a John Williams score. It's also a John Williams score that I didn't know that, you know, I mean, I was like, that's John Williams, but I have to make sure that's John Williams. You know, it, it's, it doesn't, he hadn't turned into the John Williams of the 80s where as soon as you heard it, it was like, oh, fucking John Williams. So right. I think maybe that's where the backlash started.
0: Yeah, but and i ne- i never i never did i don't remember ever thinking before this week like oh this is really this 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 one riff that gets played over and over again in this film is really pretty close to the, like the iconic jaws thing it's really just this I, um,
1: mean, I went to go see et last year let's do 80, 80 movies uh that we saw in the 80s I'm just a second and i went to we'll we'll just put a little bit of it in here right now all right uh, a little teaser I for went our next to go series see... Uh, E.T. at the drive-in uh I believe it was playing with Jaws um and and I was just completely struck by that movie's like a, a symphony you know the way like Nosferatu was a symphony of fear it's like E.T. is this like symphony of humanism and it, like, the, like right down to the final shot goes right in in line with his final timpani hit and um uh, I mean, I just it completely made me rethink that movie and rethink John Williams, um, you know, to the point where I didn't used to think this, but I, I, now I think E.T. is Spielberg's best movie.
0: Yeah, I'm not with you. It's, E.T. has always left me kind of cold.
1: It's incredible. You should check it out again and, and concentrate on the music and concentrate on the fact that it's almost a silent movie, even though it has... Those scenes over the dinner table are great dialogue scenes. Yeah, that's my favorite uh, for part. The for the most movie. part, it's great. But for the most part, it plays. It's cut completely to the music, or the music to whatever. It plays like a silent movie. It's pretty fucking amazing.
0: You know what I learned on another podcast? Because this guy was a guest on this podcast, and he shared this story. Uh, do you know who was originally supposed to play the Peter Coyote part? No completely different kind of actor.
1: and Humphrey Bogart.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes, that's exactly right. It was Bruce Dern, goddammit. Bruce Dern! Um, no, uh, it wasn't, but a, a completely different actor. And when I sort of tried to play play the movie in my head with this other actor, I was like, oh, I think this would have been better. And it's funny, because this guy said, Spielberg offered me the part, but I had this other thing coming. Oh, and, I'll, and it's really interesting what the movie he had to do that he was... Uh, going to do and Spielberg was like oh well okay I don't know when I'm going to start shooting E.T. but you should definitely go do this other thing because it's not a sure thing yet and then he went and did this mm-hmm. other thing instead of doing E.T. What was uh, the other movie? The other movie was John Carpenter's The Thing. Kurt Russell? No. Richard Mazur. <laughs>
1: yeah I wouldn't have got that. I would not. No. No
0: there's no way to that. get it. Um, but I, th- I, I think of him in in that the Peter Coyote role And I'm like yeah That would have been interesting Because I think Richard Mazur Is both more Physically imposing Than Coyote And also yeah. Then can be more Sympathetic Ultimately Than Coyote
1: Right He's got a pretty sm- uh, Soothing voice Right
0: Yeah And you know and, and, and mostly plays The roles of Like the nice guy Um, I think I saw him Most recently In Transparent Did you see that show
1: yeah, I was a fan. Fan of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, anyway. So that's Black Sunday everybody. Thanks. Good night. It's been a great one. Um Bye.
1: We're uh Well, are you going to are you going to uh run down the plot? Because yeah. this is one movie that actually has a plot. <laughs> you yes. know, we've talked about like say things like lifeguard or something that very light on plot. This yeah. movie is not light on plot.
0: No. And I've just, I know, but while we do it, I want to make sure that we're touching base. We're talking about all these people who are in it and where they were in their careers and what we think about them and what our other favorite movies are. But so let's actually start with, um, well, let's start. Well, we were talking about John Williams. So I went and it was kind of actually, he's had, he has so much shit that it's almost impossible to like find a real list of all his movies. But in this movie came out in 77 and, Star Wars came mm-hmm. out in 77 and Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in 77. Yeah. So in the same year, he, he wrote the score for all three of these films. Then in 78, he had the John
1: few- Alonzo also did the cinematography for, for, um,
0: for Black right. Sunday. Yes. For
1: Close Encounters.
0: Yes. hmm. Yeah. And then in 78, um, John Williams did the fury to Palma's the fury which I think is a pretty great score. Oh, well, you love the fury. I don't know about, I love the fury, but it is fun. I mean, it's, it's the first saw. Which, one, which one's I saw the one you the
1: love? End. Is it obsession or the fury?
0: No, out of those two, definitely the fury. The fury is the first okay. Palma movie I saw. And okay. I think ever. And so, you know, and you know, when a guy blows up at the end of the movie, which actually happens a couple times in this movie too, or at least once. Yeah. It, at ge- least once. Yeah. Yeah. The, the exploding <laughs> head. Yeah. It's pretty good. Um, and then, um, uh, oh, let's not forget that I feel like the Coen brothers got their whole bullet holes in the wall with the light streaming through from this movie when they, uh, when they, when they shoot those, uh, rifle darts in the, in that warehouse, uh, when they're testing that, the bomb.
1: Uh, what Coen brothers movie?
0: Blood Simple.
1: Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that, that whole scene reminded me of, uh, of uh one of the scenes in um, No Country for Old Men where he's the guys getting out of the truck and he's you know he's going to murder him and the guys just going along with this what are you doing there buddy and he's like oh look, can you get
0: those chicken crates out of the back there
1: hold yeah. still for this picture while
0: I blow your brains out yeah yeah this um it's interesting that this is um that this is sort of influential in the Coen brothers Another thing about this movie that's got nothing to do with what I was just talking about, but um, it's the second 70s movie with Bruce Stern that has conspicuous, sort of slightly out of date, even for the time, these rear screen projection uh-huh. things. Uh, a lot of that stuff in the blimp. I mean, I'll, I, I feel like the last 10 minutes of this movie are are masterfully edited and a great suspense sequence almost despite the production values of this movie so much of it feels so kind of fake and you're like yes they got and they must have had like one inch of the blimp that they were able to sort of push into the stadium and there's all these sort of matte paintings or whatever and there's all this rear screen every time you see Martha Keller and Bruce Dern driving the, the blimp you know the skyline is clearly like this old school sort of like rear screen projection of, of the sky yeah. And it reminds me a lot of of Bruce Dern and Family Plot, the Hitchcock film. He's got oh, this right. scene where he's losing control of this car; the brakes have been cut, much like North by Northwest, yeah. um, which also is just nothing but you know Hitchcock never stopped using rear screen like that was his thing. You know, it was like right no, he, he never met thing. a location he wanted to shoot on. He was was always, always like in the studio with this thing. Anyway. Uh so in in, in seventy eight he does The Fury, oh. he does Jaws Two, but he also does Superman. And in seventy nine he does Dracula, nineteen forty one. In eighty he does Empire Strikes Back. In eighty one he does Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then as he then he does Heartbeeps in eighty one. John Williams, sorry. I'm back to John Williams. <laughs> I was I was like uh I was how going, going through John to, Williams. How did you get back to John Williams? I, I have this list of did his. Did I scores. fall asleep for three minutes? Well Back when we were talking about the fury, I was in the middle of my John Williams scores yeah, but we thing. were talking
1: about bad special effects, right oh, okay. I know right. yeah yeah was, yeah, yeah. Was,
0: no no I was I,
1: I feel like I fell asleep at the wheel like uh like I was in North
0: by Northwest yes exactly huge parenthetical that never should have that should, never should have been anyway John Williams so but I wanted to go to John Frankenheimer. And let's call out the ones that we like yes. and don't like. So Manchurian Candidate Well, okay. first of all, Birdman of Alcatraz was his first feature film, I think. Well, not really, but it was his well, first like Lumet and, right. and and
1: and a little bit of Freakin', you know, they they and what, fucking Spielberg too. Like But but Lumet and Frankenheimer came from that whole thing of TV and American Playhouse and all that. So they Mm -hmm. did that a lot. And when you watch Manchurian Candidate, you can see all that TV stuff in it, right? I mean, I was watching some of it today and listening to the commentary, and uh, it was pretty interesting. Because it seems like Frankenheimer's never really had a look. Like when you look at that and compare it to this and to his 90s movies or his like, or, you know, like Against the Wall, like his HBO movie, like it it is, he's all just kind of goes with what works, you know, even though Mm -hmm. Against the Wall is pretty interesting because it really looks like a movie that was made in the seventies. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I don't know if you've seen it. I have. Yeah. 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 But it's like those opening credits, uh, I, I thought I saw like some. Some scratches in the film a couple of times. I mean, they might have done that uh, on purpose, but uh, it, it, it looked pretty convincing.
0: Well, well, here's something that about about Manchurian Candidate and Frankenheimer and Black Sunday. Is I feel like two things. Well, certainly he's revisiting some of those themes. I mean, there there are elements of Black Sunday that are Manchurian Candidate. I mean, yeah, Bruce Dern is kind of a Manchurian Candidate in that right. film. But the other thing about it is structurally and some of the stuff that we're complaining about with Black Sunday, where it's like almost an hour before the thing really kicks off. I've always kind of felt that way about Manchurian Candidate, too. Not that it's not that it's slow in sort of a sloppy way, but it but it really takes some time to sort of get what's going on in Manchurian Candidate. It starts off very strangely, you know, and it's all that sort of brainwashing stuff and you don't know these characters yet and you don't really know what's going on you don't know who the hero is and it's it, it, much like um, much like Black Sunday I feel like it's not until almost the midway point where the plot really kicks in and some fucked up stuff happens and you're like oh boy this this is now you've got me and I think I think a Manchurian candidate it's when it's when what's his name ends up killing his fiance um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's where that movie turns and suddenly gets like a lot more intense and like whoa 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 whoa, what movie am I as but, in?
1: But the scenes where, uh, where, where they're they're sitting around and you know the 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 uh, like the women's club turns into uh, you know the, the 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 doctors and the, and mm-hmm. the reeducation camp mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. that happens a lot sooner than I thought it did. Like there, there's some things in the movie in Manchurian candidate that that are a lot sooner than i remember them being. I was like, "Oh, wait. I thought this was like the a scene that was the showstopper, but it's right off the bat almost."
0: Yes, but I'm saying it's hard for me. It's always been hard for me to orient myself. If i haven't seen that movie for a while and i watch it again, i'm always like, "Wait, what?" I can't even remember what is going on in this movie. And I mean, I, I agree with you. That happens. That's almost the first scene in the movie that it throws right. you in there right now. And it, and I'm saying it's kind of a weird structural thing that almost has yeah. some of the same effect that Black Sunday is where for a while you're like, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I don't know who, where my sympathies are supposed to be in this movie. I don't know who I'm supposed to care about. Is Martha yeah. Keller the, the protagonist of this movie?
1: Right, 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 right. Yeah, the the opening of Manchurian Candidate is very, very similar to the opening of Black Sunday. Like the opening scene in Manchurian Candidate, it's a pre-credit sequence. I mean, it's just like, you could just switch them out if you wanted to.
0: Are you teasing me now?
1: No, no, I'm completely serious. Like, uh, watch the beginning of the Manchurian Candidate. It's kind of like, it's like, wow, this is very similar to what he did in Black Sunday.
0: So seven days in May came after Manchurian Candidate. I've seen that have movie. You seen I don't that? remember much about it. I think I've seen it, but I don't. It doesn't ring. It doesn't really. I don't have any memories of it.
1: I mean, that's about uh, some people who want to kill the president uh, because they think oh, he's going to mm-hmm. uh, send off a bomb. So that is very, you know, like right with those two movies, he basically set up the template for you know all these. 70s movies that we're talking about
0: well after that came the train and I love the story that I read today about the train the train had been shooting in France for for three days when the star Burt Lancaster had Arthur Penn the original director fired Mm -hmm. and then they called in Frankenheimer to save the film and as Frankenheimer recounts, Frankenheimer used the production's desperation to his advantage in negotiations. He successfully demanded that his name be made part of the title. So it's really called John Frankenheimer's The Train. And mm. this is really interesting to me that the uncredited French standby director required by French tax laws. he Frankenheimer made it so that that guy was never to be allowed on the film set. And then he'd be given total final cut on the film. And that he received a Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) So Frankenheimer, man, making some moves, even in 64.
1: That French guy, he's not allowed on the set. Yeah. And I want Final Cut.
0: Right. And I want a Ferrari. Yeah. Standby director, fuck that. He can stand by in another country. (laughs) So then in 66, he did Seconds, which is certainly his craziest film classic yeah but totally wild like yeah, yeah. not like any of the others kind of like a I, kind of like an extended twilight zone but with a midsection that is m- so much more surreal and kind of weird and dreamlike than any twilight zone
1: episode. you know i mean i remember being freaked out the first time i saw the manchurian candidate like he Frankenheimer leans into the surreal. Like, he's always had that, you know, and 52 Pickup is a weird fucking movie, you know?
0: Yeah. It sure is. Uh, Grand Prix, which I don't think I've ever seen.
1: I haven't either. I'm aware of it, but
0: no. And then in the 70s, he did I Walk the Line with Gregory Peck and Tuesday Weld.
1: Right.
0: Right. Uh, about a Tennessee sheriff who falls in love with a moonshiner's daughter and was set to songs by Johnny Cash. That looks good. And then he I'll did be watching ho- that later. Yeah. And then he did The Horsemen, which focused on a that. relationship between a father and son played by Jack Palance and Omar Sharif. Okay, Ooh. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Those two. Get they those two in They don't seem like father and son. I don't understand that.
1: I think Frankenheimer thing. said I want... Jack Palance and Omar Sharif and I want a Ferrari
0: (laughs) and Omar Sharif can be the standby director but only if he plays Jack Palance's son that's not what happened is it? no I don't know I'm just going with your riff about the Ferrari okay Uh, so then you know some other movies French Connection 2 which I really do have a a real fondness for especially the end Uh, and then my then you know then I think the other good one is Black Sunday. Uh, then what after about that, prophecy? well, then after that, even Frankenheimer, in his biography, talks about his alcohol problem, which caused him to do work that was below his own standards. Uh, and he, don't
1: blame the alcohol.
0: And he talks about the prophecy, which I did try to watch not too long ago. Is it on Amazon these days? I can't remember is where it? it is. I hope so. I don't it's on something. I didn't see it. It might be on HBO Max or something. Great poster. Yeah. Terrible, crazy movie. Yep. Um Of which Talia Shire, you know, it's interesting because I, when I think of Talia Shire before like this past year of sort of bumping into her movies all the time because of podcasts and things, I always thought like mm-hmm. r- Rocky and that's about it, you know, sort of like one and done, uh, you know, Godfather... Godfather godfather and then rock but i'm saying after rocky like you know i rocky was her breakout role but i thought it broke out into nothing okay like didi khan ended up sort of taking her roles after that but um uh you know didi khan from greece and uh she was the star of you light up my life which came up in the podcast last night uh if you get if people listening to this show aren't listening to lifers you're missing all kinds of good movie talk that comes up on on that other podcast that we do so check that one out
1: too. Cross referential, intergenerational.
0: There's like if yeah, if you're a completist, I mean, the, there, the, I think the, the podcast shows, universe. Yeah, the show that we do have a podcast universe going between the two shows, but but uh, but Tally Shire, who's in the prophecy, and is in this movie that I saw this past year called Old Boyfriends, which is insane. All oh, right, and is also Joan the story, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it Joan Please Tewsbury?
1: edit it out if it's wrong. I, I can't. I can't be wrong this week. I just can't.
0: It's Joan Tewsbury. Do it. God, yes.
1: Don't get cocky, kid. Come on. You can do it, Scott. But don't get cocky.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, she also made this movie, which I wa- unfortunately watched this year. Which I'd always heard was one of the worst movies ever made, but really fucking is. Like, makes the prophecy look like a masterpiece. Hit me. This this Gordon Willis, the one movie that he directed called Windows.
1: Oh, I don't know if I know that one.
0: Yeah, you might want to look at it, just so you can see with your own eyes what I'm talking about.
1: What's the one movie that Ernest Lamont directed?
0: Did he? I don't know that he did. I have his. Wait. Ernest I think LeMond. he directed a movie and it's. His filmography, his writing credits. Or Lehman. Oh, Ernest Lamont turned down offers to write Jonathan Demi's script for Silence of the Lambs And he also turned down. Isn't that crazy? He also turned down writing Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible. You know, and Isn't who knows nuts? what those versions would have been? But those are—I think those are both great screenplays. I'm a Still big Mission Impossible
1: fan. Sweet smell of success,
0: right? Oh, you know Man, what he did? He directed. Oh, yeah, Portnoy's complaint. Portnoy's complaint. Complain. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: That's that's a tough one. That's uh, that's not easy on anybody.
0: I've tried to watch it. I, I mean, I haven't tried. I don't even think I've ever tried to watch it. Have you seen it?
1: I I have. Yes. Um, as I say, it was not. It was not easy. It it had everything going for it and against it. You know, is
0: who's in Richard
1: Benjamin. Oh, Richard Benjamin basically plays. You know, as a stand-in for for Roth, for Philip Roth, and uh, and I was like, how can this go wrong? And then I thought, how could this have gone right?
0: <laughs> well, it's also got Karen Black, Lee Grant. Yep. Jill Clayberg. Oh, Jill Clayberg. Love Jill Clayberg. Music by so, Michelle Legrand. Ooh, oh,
1: oh, who doesn't love Michelle Legrand? Oh, I, I love, 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 love Michelle Legrand. So you haven't gotten to Dead Bang or Reindeer Games or uh, 52 Pickup?
0: Right, I, I, you're you're right, and I wanted to, because I wanted to get to the Frankenheimer stuff that other, oh, well, I said it was Ronin was the one that I think people like, and I'm like, I don't get it. But,
1: but you like reindeer games, right?
0: I kind of do like reindeer games. I, I think it's great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Reindeer games is the one that gets slagged off these days, and I don't know why. I'm like, I don't know. kind of fun.
1: Reindeer games is like the... Existence of John Frankenheimer. Like a lot of people would be like, oh, it's too obvious. It's, it's like, it's like a, uh, a parody of a Cronenberg movie. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. I want to watch that.
0: And uh, I feel the same way about Reindeer Games. I'll tell you what I think about Existence. And I certainly love Videodrome. But I feel like in a lot of ways, Existence is Cronenberg is sort of redoing uh, Videodrome. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, doing it better. Like, I think it's pretty great. I don't
1: know if it's better. I, 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 I think Videodrome is an amazing, amazing piece of work. But I think there's a lot of Naked Lunch going on in Existence as well. And... I don't know how you feel about Naked Lunch, but I think that's another one of his absolute masterpieces. Um, so yeah, I, I love <laughs> Existence, and you you don't like that one?
0: No, no, that you was don't the like begin- Naked Lunch. No, that was like the beginning of the of, of a really dark period for me and Cronenberg with the Lonenberg oh Naked Lunch is so so and It's probably good. the best. It's probably the best of them, but <laughs> yeah, but it's,
1: yeah, I mean, it's not M Butterfly. I mean, it is it is fucking great. And it's one of my favorite literary adaptations of all time. But we'll talk about that when we get to 90 movies in the 90s.
0: Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, we should we should probably do like a dueling, dueling Cronenbergs podcast, like just a whole series. Because so I feel like you and I are like these huge Cronenberg yeah. fans, but we are almost diametrically opposed on the ones we like and don't like. Because I would say that... Cronenberg loggerheads. Yeah, my David... my uh, My Naked Lunch... Uh, in the, and I think is a masterpiece is the one that you don't like the history of violence.
1: Ah, uh, you know, I mean, it's hard to say I don't like history of violence. It's hard to say you don't like a movie that you watched as many times as I've watched history of <laughs> violence. It's the same yeah. thing with dead zone. I mean, yeah. I, I watch the movie every time it's on, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, you know, if you have to place the movies in a list, those movies are going down towards the bottom and uh, Naked Lunch, and, and Videodrome is going right up there with uh, Rabid and, you know, the good stuff.
0: Scanners and The Brood.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think of, of the early stuff, I think Rabid is the best one. I, I think it's better than The Brood and I, definitely better than Scanners. I think all, both of those movies are better than Scanners. Hmm. I mean, come on. Like Videodrome is just so good. I, but I also really, really love Dead Ringers. So this, what do you think of Dead Ringers?
0: I, maybe it's his best movie.
1: Okay. All right. See, that's interesting. So somewhere we're going to find...
0: Listen, if how, we're if, if we're how it too, converges. If we are two rabid Cronenberg fans, certainly we're going to have some convergences. I think it's on the margins that we're having some troubles.
1: I think it's Dead Ringers. I mean, it, it, uh, you know, I don't really know how Venn diagrams work, but I, I suppose <laughs> Dead Ringers is, is the whatever that is in the Venn diagram.
0: And I will say, let me say this about Scanners. I didn't scanners. go to college. Let me say this about Scanners. It's, 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 cert- it's absolutely a subjective thing. Scanners was my first Cronenberg movie, and I saw it in a movie theater when it came out. So.
1: Mind-blowing, literally, mind-blowing to all of us. You know, you know what I mean? That was the thing. Yeah. Not the thing, but you know, it was a thing.
0: No, but the thing was equally mind-blowing when I saw that when it yeah. came out in the theater.
1: Right. Who but yeah, is this an exploding
0: head? Who would not want to watch a movie with, with an exploding head? Right. Clyde Kusatsu. That's the guy who plays the freighter captain whose head blows up in Black Sunday.
1: Speaking of, way, way to swerve it back to Black Sunday. Because you, I wanted to good.
0: look him up because it's, that's a guy I saw in a million movies. First of all, there's right. Asian guys in this movie that I'm like, oh, who is that? I see him all the time. There's this guy in the first scene when Martha Keller goes and they show her the the um, prisoner of war footage that they've stolen of Bruce Dern. And right. these guys are sitting around the room and she's pissed off at them for some reason. Because I don't, I don't even understand what she's mad about. Something about... Showing that footage to her, um, yeah, I didn't a, get that that scene the first time. Right? There's the there's the guy in that who's who, who. Kate and my wife was like, "Oh, George Takei," and I'm like, "That's not George Takei." I mean, yes, it looks like George Takei, but that's not that's this other guy who's not George Takei. I think did his name is racist? George Takei. Yeah, I did.
1: Did you call her racist? Because that's what I would do. I do that all. But the time But
0: dude, you know who Clyde? You know what Clyde Kusatsu was—the freighter captain who gets blown up by telephone. You know what movie he's in? What was he in? He's in a movie that what? we saw and talked about not too long ago. He's in Oh God.
1: Oh God, he is? I thought you were going to say he was in that other movie that we talked about in the Oh God episode. The um, book three, the one about the train. Oh. No. <laughs>
0: yeah, the one you saw in church.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I haven't watched that yet. I have to apologize. So we
1: like you. Reindeer Games uh, and... We like 52 Pickup, right? I mean, come on. We like 52 Pickup.
0: I like 52 Pickup.
1: Yeah. We, sh- we, what, showed, what, what we, we
0: showed 52 Pickup at work a couple of years ago.
1: Yeah? When, are you going to show Dead Bang when you guys open up again?
0: No, and I don't know if I've seen Dead Bang. Who's in
1: Dead Bang? Dead, Dead Bang is with uh, Don Johnson. Oh, and, fuck. Uh, I can't watch And, uh, oh, what's his name? And And he's a cop who's, you know, kind of, kind of you know not a great cop kind of crooked um, like a drunk cop I don't know if he's crooked Um, but he's trying to take down a bunch of uh, Nazis Uh, there's like a white supremacist thing going on and uh, what's his name is in it who uh, who played uh, uh, Al Capone in one of those Untouchables TV shows or something like that
0: William Forsyth
1: yes so I think William Forsyth is in it Yes. Please look that up. Okay, yes.
0: And Penelope Ann Miller and Bob Balaban and Tate Donovan.
1: That's right. So I think this movie is, uh, especially after the year we've had, it might be a good movie for you to to throw up there. Well, I'll tell you what.
0: I I said this obnoxious thing about when you said Don Johnson. I was like, oh, I didn't watch it. But I don't know why I said that because I kind of love Don Johnson. Uh, Boy and His Dog is one of my favorite movies of all time. You ever seen yeah. LQ Jones? Yeah. Yep. 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 Um and I also love I'm a big
1: hotspot fan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh but 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 the the this the the Don Johnson of the last five years, I think, is really great too. His work on Eastbound and yeah. Down. And his work on the first episode of Watchmen, I thought was fantastic. He sings a song from Oklahoma. Kind of knocks the house down. Yeah. So God, God bless was Don Johnson. I was sorry
1: to see him go. I was really sorry to see him go on that.
0: Yeah, me too. I thought, well, wow, they, I can't believe they're getting rid of Don Johnson. He's giving one of the best performances of his the last 20 years of his career. You know yeah, what else he's you're in? Like,
1: obviously, they're getting rid of Don Johnson, and, and that's why he's giving
0: one of his best performances. He's in, um, did you see Dragged Across Concrete? Yeah, man. I... I, I I know
1: this is probably not shared by everybody, but I love that movie.
0: Oh, and it's shared uh, by, it's shared by me. I love that. Okay. We, good. we, right before, um, pandemic shut us down. We were, we had announced it. We had booked it. We were going to show all that guy's movies. We were going to show the, the cowboy, Craig, the, the Craig, Western one. Craig X, Zoller. That's Craig Zoller. Right. Uh, the, the, the cowboy one, which is called. Bone Tomahawk. Bone Tomahawk. Uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99, which is pretty fucking yep. great. And probably the best one dragged across concrete. Yeah, pretty great, I'm a pretty I'm, great fucking movie.
1: Yeah, I'm down with that guy. I'm down with him. And and I thought uh, Don Johnson was great. Absolutely. I mean, that that's just that is a that is a stew of of uh, I don't know. There's a there's a lot going on in that movie. That's a that's a political gumbo.
0: Well, I don't know if you got to see any of those in theaters. I i didn't i did okay cool good for you because i was going to say when when we reopen i'm sure we're (laughs) going to do that series you can come to madison and and check those movies out in a movie
1: theater well i i will i i saw it dragged across concrete i mean it would played in one theater in chicago and for a week and and i remember seeing the poster i was like oh i gotta see this when it comes out because i was a big bone tomahawk fan and then I just happened to see It's playing I was like oh So I go And it's me And one other guy In the theater And it was just Silence It was just a perfect way To see that movie You know yeah. And you know There's always that Other shoe to drop In his movies Where it gets really violent So I kept waiting For that um, And it and came. it does come Right <laughs> it, it sure comes. does <laughs> but, but man I just I thought it was great And you know Me and that other guy Were like After the movie We were like That was great Wasn't it I was like yeah
0: That's a nice story I'm glad yeah. you shared that attitude. I get a lot of them. Michael Lander is a pilot who flies the Goodyear blimp <laughs> <laughs> over NFL games to film them for network television secretly deranged by years of torture as a POW in the Vietnam War he had a bitter court martial on his return and a failed marriage now this is how the, can how can Bruce Dern's
1: derangement be a secret Not be completely visible to anybody who cares to, you know, glance his way for five seconds.
0: Right. Well, I will say a surprise to me watching it recently was the out and out comedy, the deliberate, hilarious sort of comedy of the scene where he goes to the VA uh, hospital or its office to like check in with his Counselor, who's William Daniels, who William will forever, Daniels. Now I don't know how you feel about William Daniels. Yeah, for me, he'll forever be uh, Dustin Hoffman's father in *The Graduate*. Although he's in a ton of things, absolutely I've seen him all the time. I never, I never but not he's think so, of
1: that. He's so handsome in the parallax view. You know, like, like he just seems like, like a guy that gets lots of ass, and he doesn't seem like that kind of guy when he's Dustin Hoffman's dad and he's younger you know it's like he really seems to have grown into like this like just you know an older dude who really pulls him right like in parallax view he's like he's the guy with the boat
0: yeah yeah he is and yes you're right he looks like a a, a playboy on a luxury yacht right right um but in i mean i i think that his most and it's it's fantastic, but his most sort of caricature performance is here in Black Sunday. He he's got this pipe, he's got these horn rim glasses, he's got his hair combed down over his forehead. He's doing he's doing nonstop shtick, you know. And he's mm-hmm. all his reactions to to Bruce Dern are priceless. Dernsey is is hamming it up big time, <laughs> and he he's got some of his best dialogue in that scene where he says. um, He's, he's talking about the guy who came in from the military to talk to his wife explain to her what it was right. gonna be like when he comes back and how how prisoners of war their yeah. their life how expectancy it was gonna be hard for like, her yeah and how it's gonna be hard for him to get it up and he does this thing and, right. he's, and then he says and yes yeah, she was getting some dick on the side and yeah right he's right he says uh you're right he says he was to explaining how hard it was gonna be for her for her like how hard it was gonna be for right, her right, right. it's a great scene love that scene <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Uh, I have a hard time uh picturing Ernest Lamont writing dick on the side.
0: No, that's no way was that Ernie. That had to be Kenneth Ross, uh or um I mean he did he did work on Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. I remember as a kid um being somewhere taking some kind of weird IQ test or something at Brooklyn College. I don't know what was going on. But it was one of these weird tests, and I don't know why I was there. But they were having me like put together blocks, and somehow we got into—I got into a conversation with the woman who was um, uh, giving me the test, and we started talking about North by Northwest, which is this film that had made a huge impression on me because I was—it was one of the first films I saw, and it was fucking fantastic. And I don't know why, but we had this discussion about um uh, swear words in movies and that, uh-huh. that there weren't any back in the day and i said no in north by northwest there is because um uh carrie grant's talking to eva marie saint and he's complaining about the gun that that she, that he has and it's really like a fake gun or it's, it shoots blanks uh and he says and she says oh yeah it." he's well all i had was your shitty gun and I, I had been convinced. I had convinced myself that that was a line. It's not. He says it's your silly gun. But I didn't. It was probably ten more years before I got back to that movie, and it's like, oh, this thing I told this woman about the word "shitty" being in this movie is not true.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't think they had invented swear words until the seventies. So I didn't and, think they they were a thing until they started showing up in movies.
0: Right, and then what? Then what broke that spell? Watching Deadwood and realizing that they used those words in the in the old West.
1: Yes, that that was exactly it. That was exa- oh my God. They had cocksucker back in the Western days. I have to go back and watch Stagecoach. Yeah. That's what well, that's what did it. That Shattered was, some illusions.
0: Uh, it, it really did. Ian McShane who who freaked me out. By appearing in movies in the 70s that I've now seen and been like, wait a minute. This guy's been doing this since when? Right. 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 Lander is desperately in love uh, with Dahlia Iliad, or Liad, an operative from the Palestinian terrorist group Black September, who controls and manipulates him. They conspire together to launch a suicide attack using a bomb composed of plastique and a quarter million steel flechettes. Now, I don't think flechettes. they use the word flechettes in this movie but we not no I that's weird right they call them rifle darts which I also don't really know what those are but
1: they're darts they're little steel darts is is what, what you would think they are they kind of look like arrows
0: but they get shot out of rifles
1: uh yes like you know like I, I don't know if they're they're like packed in a shell or what? I'm not really sure. You know what I'm talking about?
0: I mean, I know what you're saying. I'm, I'm trying to figure out whether you're making all this up or whether you have some experience <laughs> with rifle darts. No,
1: I, you know, I mean, uh, uh, let, let, me, let me check my copy of the anarchist cookbook over here and see what that has to say. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't uh, have it. It's somewhere. The dog must have ate it.
0: I was interviewing a filmmaker who's also a poet. Uh, today, and she had a book published by this publishing company called "The Vegetarian Alcoholic." Was is like the name of this book publishing company?
1: What are you trying to say?
0: I don't know. And somehow that came up when when you when you when you started talking about the anarchist cookbook. I suddenly started thinking of this fucking <clears throat> vegetarian alcoholic publishing company. Um. Uh, da, 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 da. They plan to mount a bomb on the underside of a gondola of the Goodyear blimp. Which to me that gondola looks kind of just like a well, I guess it is a gondola is like a little boat, but I think of a yeah. gondola is more like a the thing you see floating around in Venice.
1: Yeah, that's not a gondola. That's like a that's like a little that's like a motor a sailboat, boat, right? Like a motor, yeah. yeah,
0: I don't even know. Yeah, just like a boat, like a yeah, like this like the cheapest boat rental you can do at like the neighborhood, right? <laughs> right. You, you
1: you put in you put an Evanrude seven fifty on it. And you go around and you and you take your like little steel darts and you shoot fish. And yeah. uh you know, and then you get a couple of carp and you go home and you've had a good day. Right. Pick a couple pockets on the way, maybe you get seven seven fifty.
0: Boy, this is a really short summary of this film.
1: Um, That's amazing to me. Yeah. Because there's A lot going on.
0: I know. They really just condense it. During a raid on a Black September unit in the Middle East, the Israeli counter-terrorist Mossad agent David Kabakov surprises Liad while she is bathing. His mission was to kill everyone in the... But somebody... I mean, this is some... I don't know who wrote this. Like a 12-year-old kid. This is not (laughs) good writing. His mission was to kill everyone in the unit. However, seeing her unarmed and naked, he spares her life and turns his attention to clearing the rest of the unit. It's not a unit. It's some fucking house. Anyway... She escapes When the raid is complete Kabakov refines A recorded message In which she had planned To publish After the terrorist attack The recording explains The motive for the terrorism But does not include Any specific information About the attack plan itself Collaborating with FBI Agent Sam Corley Played by What's his name? Fritz Weaver I don't know how I feel About Fritz Weaver ever
1: I like Fritz Weaver Big fan of Fritz Weaver
0: What's your favorite Fritz Weaver? Uh, creep show. Oh sure. Sure. That is a good Fritz Weaver.
1: You thought you had me there for a second, didn't no, you? No, I
0: didn't. I did not. I'm never trying to have you on this show. <laughs> I'm always excited to hear what you gotta say.
1: Uh I mean, he's always in the he's in the demon seed too. Yeah, but that's not good. No, it's not good. But Let's... in its own way, essential.
0: Yeah. Well, just like Black Sunday. Weaver, Fritz
1: Weaver, yeah, but creep show. The funny thing about Fritz Weaver is at first I was like, Is he, but he's not. Uh, what's his name? Um, in uh, Reanimator, like he has sort of oh. the same mm-hmm. sort of uh, features, but it's not him. Fritz uh, Weaver is not as evil.
0: Well, you know what, you know what, Fritz, I'll tell you two movies. One that we talked about tonight that he's in and one that I that I really love and I haven't seen him forever. Marathon and it is Man. a seventies movie. He's in Marathon he, Man. He's in Marathon Man. But the movie I guess I need to rewatch at some point is Day of the Dolphin. Oh yeah. I don't know that one.
1: I mean I, I I've never seen it. It's a crazy, crazy movie. I've also movie. never seen Day of the Jackal.
0: Yeah. And and people compare this movie to Black Sunday to Day of the Jackal. And actually one of the three screenwriters right, is, is the guy who wrote Day of the Jackal. Right. But right. Day of the Dolphin, I'm gonna. maybe you know this about it already, but I'm gonna blow your mind. Because this is the weird thing about Day of the Dolphin. Day of the Dolphin is written by Buck Henry. Whoa. And Day of the Dolphin I'd watch that. and Day of the Dolphin is directed by Mike Nichols. Oh, well, but it isn't I seen this. But it is a straight up science fiction thriller film about like an intelligent dolphin who's trying to who, who the government is trying to use as a weapon. Oh well now I understand why I haven't seen it. That doesn't sound good at all. <laughs> I'm not saying it is. But what here's what year the was thing. that? It was nineteen seventy three. Shit. Now let me lay this so like cast up.
1: It was after Colonel knowledge?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was the beginning of the end for Mike Nichols. You know, Mike Nichols so, had a hell of a run for a couple movies. It was the, was like, <laughs> fuck it.
1: So it was the movie after Carnal Knowledge and he's
0: making movies about dolphins with Buck Henry. Right. Written by Buck Henry. But, but know, it was believe, based on a novel. Uh, but okay, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the cast because this is the best part of the thing. Okay. Day of the Dolphins stars George C. Scott, Trish Vanderveer, go of course. Uh Oh, here we go. And wait, the third build... Paul Sorvino. I mean, how could this movie not be great? And it's not great, but it's it's interesting to watch. It's fun. It's crazy.
1: You know, I th- some people call cocaine the dolphin. So <laughs> maybe that's what's really going on.
0: Do some people really call cocaine the dolphin?
1: Uh, you'll just have to watch the movie and find out, I guess.
0: I'm going to read you. I know we're way off the it's deep end. The dolphin
1: end here. swimming. Is the dolphin swimming? Yes, the dolphin is swimming.
0: By the way. You never heard that before? <laughs> yeah, no. By the way, I uh is that Get a glass? Is that a here. was that a huge cup of wine that you drank? Red wine? No. Okay. Um we're way off the deep end. On the other hand, this movie is what 2 2 hours and 20 minutes, so we we do have some time if we want it. I'm going to say right up front, we're not taking all that time. Let's not take all that time. We're at an hour 24 right now. Um, We
1: started started late.
0: If we can get out of here in six minutes, that's great. Uh, Great. But I want to read you the tagline for the poster for Day of the Dolphin. Because this is the log line for this movie. Wow, how did we get on
1: Day of the Dolphin? Oh, was it Fritz Weaver?
0: Uh, That's a good question. It might have been. Yes, Fritz Weaver's in it. By the way, director of cinematography, William A. Fraker.
1: Very interesting, because William A. Fraker was replaced by John A. Alonzo on Chinatown. Mm-hmm. But then John A. Alonzo was later replaced by Stanley Cortez.
0: Mm-hmm. It all ties together. It really does. Okay, here's the log line for Day of the Dolphin. It's, it's like... In huge letters on this poster. And it's got, it's got a, the poster is like George C. Scott. It's like a drawing, a color drawing of George C. Scott. And he's got this, one of those (laughs) diving goggles on his forehead. And it's his profile. And behind him, there's a ship blowing up. But stenciled across this whole thing is the log line. Unwittingly, he trained a dolphin to kill the president of the United States.
1: Why are we doing this movie? I don't know.
0: I don't know. I forgot about that movie. Jesus
1: now. Christ. Better movie, Black Sunday or Day of the Dolphin? Yeah. Better movie, Parallax View or Day of the Dolphin? That's a good question. Three Days of the Dolphin. How about that? Now that is a good movie.
0: You know, you should have said to me, I just watched the Parallax View after Black Sunday. Let's do that instead, since we keep talking about I should have, but...
1: I thought this would be more interesting because I love the idea of us constantly talking about the parallax view and never actually doing the parallax view. Here's, here's our and goal. I forget
0: if, yeah, if we if there's if somebody we get
1: who listens to this that keeps talking about the, you know, man, I, I got to see this parallax view. You know, you guys keep talking about it. I mean, yeah. I'm basically talking about it for that guy.
0: I'll tell you what, if we get to 70 episodes of this thing, that could be our 70th movie that we saw in the 70s. That could be yeah. our end goal. Parallax view is going to be the parallax cap. view is the end goal.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. So either that uh, or Day of the Dolphin.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I think we should do that next. Uh, together, they're able. Well, here's a, here's something I thought of uh, that this is actually the third Bruce Dern movie that we're doing on seventy movies. The second one that I've done with you because we did Smile last time, right? And Mike and I did um, Silent Running. Um, okay, at some point, point. so I feel like. Maybe he's the actor that we've done the most movies of so far. Well, I, I
1: you know, I haven't watched that Dernsey's bit on the, on the smile. Uh, oh God. Blu-ray that's a, yet, that's a great little. I always loved him. Yeah. I can't wait to watch it, but I always love that, that quote that he had. He's like, you know, we didn't look like Robert Redford or, you know, the other guys, but we were fucking interesting. And I always love that.
0: He was interesting. He is interesting. He's yes. still kicking.
1: He is interesting. Yeah. Don't do, don't do that. Oh no. You know what just happened? You know, just what just killed, we you just know what's going to happen Dern. tomorrow when yeah. you wake up. Yeah. I don't even want to say it out loud. Oh, you just killed Bruce Dern. God damn it. Uh, you didn't do it on purpose. I know you didn't do it on purpose.
0: So this is where, this is how we got to Fritz Weaver. Cause I mentioned FBI agent, Sam Corley, Kabakov from, tries to learn the details of the plan together they're able to trace the path of a large amount of plastic explosives so here's something interesting this movie right. is maybe the first one that's got contraband of some kind hidden in these Virgin Mary statues but it's after the conversation which has this great the way Bruce Stern breaks that that little statuette that um, uh, um, Martha Keller brings to him towards the beginning of the movie Like it's a chocolate bunny? Yeah, it's terrific. I I could watch him break the head off of that thing a million times over, but it's so much exactly what Hackman does in the conversation, right? He does the same fucking thing. Right. Breaks that thing open because he's looking to see where the the wire is, where he's being surveilled from. Right. And it also uh, reminded me of the plot line in the show Lost, where they're smuggling drugs in those little statuettes and they find some of them uh charlie the rock star <laughs> did you ever watch that i didn't get
1: i didn't get that far oh, okay. i uh I, I i you know watched about eight episodes and i was like i've had enough of this
0: yeah good you you saved yourself some grief yeah yeah <laughs> but they do use those little is that the virgin mary i don't know what i'm not catholic i don't know what are those fucking things
1: I think it's the Virgin Mary. It seems like the I'm not Catholic either, but I, I would bet money that it's the Virgin Mary.
0: So that's but it's an interesting trope to me is like the the hiding shit in the Virgin Mary statuettes, and I'm sure there's a ton of other examples, but I just can't think of any.
1: I don't know what to tell you.
0: Is look, I'm, the look it. on your face is like I don't know what you're talking about? I've never seen that in a movie before or since. But I just named two that you have seen, Conversation and this fucking thing.
1: Right. Well, there's two. Two does not make a conspiracy.
0: No, but I will say I've always always wondered what those things are made out of because I can't figure out what they're doing when they break them. Are they plaster? Or are they some kind of plastic?
1: I think they're a paperweight. A Virgin Mary plaster of Paris paperweight
0: Plaster of Paris That's what and you think somewhere,
1: they're made out of. Plaster of Paris paperweight And somewhere Griffin Dune's uh, papers are flying all over his office Because he can't get those things Nice See, I've gone to the 80 movies in the 80s
0: But you say Dune, I say Dunn Yeah It's probably Dunn, right? Griffin Dunn? I think Griffin, His Dunn. father Griffin is Dunn. Dominic Dunn. Dunn Is his father Dominic Dunn?
1: Well, I also say
0: Frank Herbert's done. Do you? <laughs> See, Griffin's got two ends, and Frank Herbert's only yeah. got the one. Are we done? It was done. Are we done, Frank? No,
1: Frank Herbert was done. Well, I we should get to uh, we should get to the ending of this. No, you I'm know, not. I was kidding. It, I was it, making it shot a during. Hang on a second. I know we're not done. Okay. Well, I mean. I, but we should get to the, uh, the the football game, right? Which is, We're getting to there. me, seems to be this whole movie's reason for being.
0: Yeah, it is. And interestingly enough, or not, they actually shot most of that footage at an actual Super Bowl. So that's Robert Shaw and Fritz Weaver on the sidelines during the In fourth 76. quarter of an actual Super Bowl.
1: Right. The Pittsburgh Steelers versus the Dallas Cowboys. And the Steelers ended up winning that, making them one of the first, one of only three teams to win back to back Super Bowls at that time.
0: Yeah. Well, I want uh, to read uh, some of this fun production stuff, and then we'll get back to the end of the plot. So the film was produced by former Paramount Pictures chief Robert Evans, who came up uh, in, a, in a Lifers episode not too long ago, I think.
1: Yep, not too long ago, with the uh, Bob Odenkirk bit about he. Robert Evans God was Robert
0: Evans. Right. Oh man, somebody's praying. Evans had earlier produced Chinatown and Marathon Man. Uh right. as, and here's 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 a fun anecdote. As it hinged on filming a real Goodyear blimp at a real Super Bowl, many challenges existed. Luckily, Frankenheimer had a good relationship with Goodyear tire and rubber company head Robert Lane as a result of working with Goodyear on his earlier film, Grand Prix. Lane told Frankenheimer, you're the only person I've ever worked with who has kept his word. Frankenheimer told Goodyear that if they declined to use their blimps, he would rent the only other mm. large blimp in the world from Germany, painted silver, <laughs> and people would assume it was theirs anyway. Right. Boy, Frankenheimer's right. a real fucking prick. Fucking awesome. <laughs> Lane granted Frankenheimer use of Goodyear's blimps on three conditions. The film had to make it clear that the villainous pilot did not work directly for Goodyear, but for a contractor. Mm -hmm. The final explosion could not come out of the word Goodyear on the blimp's side. And the blimp itself could not be part of any violence. For example, nobody was to be churned up in its propellers. For example. For example. (laughs) But you
1: know, you could shoot people that were like you know, yeah, I know. I feel like
0: I feel like that might they might have abided by the letter of the law with that clause, but, but certainly not the spirit.
1: Right. But they also didn't want Goodyear to be in the ads, right? It was is is I'm not seeing the blimp. That's why the blimp reads Super Bowl in those oh. in the uh, in the posters and the oh, ads okay. for the movie.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Evans helped secure the unprecedented cooperation of the National Football League and the production was allowed to film at Super Bowl, what's X, 10? I'm good with the Roman On January 18th, 1976, and shoot extensive footage with the principal actors for the film's final half hour as the Pittsburgh Steelers beat the Dallas Cowboys 21-17, as you mentioned, sports fan that you are.
1: Well, I'm not, but I, I do remember that uh, the Steelers and the Cowboys, when I was growing up, they seemed to be the only teams on the planet at that time. Like, everybody had either Steelers or Cowboys shit on. And, you know, there was some Green Bay Packers stuff, but the Steelers and the Cowboys seemed to be the thing. And I know nothing about football. What, what exactly is the Super Bowl? And I mean, that, that's pretty much Yeah, you're me.
0: basically Robert Shaw in this movie. I am basically
1: Robert Shaw, Yes
0: you're about as Israeli as Robert Shaw. So I think it works out fine.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. I appreciate um, it. But, what, but the, the shots of Robert Shaw running around in, in the stands during the game are pretty, pretty fucking classic. They're great. And the look on people's face, and there's one guy that he's going over the railing and, and he's trying to stop him. Like, no, no, you can't do that. And I was like, yes, I can. I'm Robert Shaw.
0: Yeah. He, um, did you know? I think when I was a kid, I didn't give a shit about sports either. Not that I do now, but I sort of know a little bit more. And I don't, I don't think I ever watched the Super Bowl as a kid. But I certainly was aware of, and everyone I knew was totally into. And we were kids. I mean, in '77, I was like 11, maybe 10 or 11. We mm-hmm. were into the fucking Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Did that hit? Did that hit you where you were?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a real thing, you know. And what was that were, thing? What the fuck were we supposed to do with that? What I mean, what? you know, they were just uh, it was they were everywhere. Like they were on lunch boxes and you know posters and stuff like that. And it was, you know, like I said, and like you said, I I mean, it, it went it went by me. I was bored off my ass every Sunday when I'd have to go to to my my parents friend's house and they put on like golf or the football game. And I was just like, Oh my God, fucking kill me. But, but those were the teams, you know? I mean, and that's probably one of the reasons why I avoided this movie for so long. I was like, Oh, it takes place during a football game. Great. Count me out, man. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just a young, healthy, sexual curiosity. But as far I, as the uh, Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, well, but everybody at, loved the Dallas Cowboy
0: cheerleaders. I know, but why? Where did it come from? What was the impact? Like, can you imagine that happening now? Like, we're we're literally talking about the cheerleaders for a football team. They were stars.
1: They had their own TV shows. You know, I mean, um, did they? I mean, and, and that hasn't been that long ago. Like, you know, I feel like, like the Dallas cheerleaders had something going. For a long, long time, way longer than most people would have thought that it should have gone on for.
0: Well, you know, you know what there was. Like, you know what there was that I feel was just as much part of the zeitgeist and just as much in the air, and maybe even more so than the actual Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, was Debbie Does Dallas. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Well, that was all part of the thing, right?
0: I guess. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, was, it was the porn. It was the porn. Sp- you know, takeoff take take off on right but that almost got more popular than the cheerleaders themselves
1: right well you know they were mutually beneficial to each other what's really weird to me is the cross-cutting between what's happening with the blimp and you know robert shaw's helicopter it kind of puzzles me because it keeps going back to the game and shows us the score But what's going on with the terrorist plot like has nothing to do with the score or which team wins the game i mean it's just like they're just showing off that they got to shoot during the super bowl and like i'm watching the cross-cutting i'm like the cross-cutting is pointless do you get that feeling at all or am i just crazy is there something else going on that i'm not catching
0: I, I think that it I, it doesn't bother me in that it's like it's saying like the game is ramping up everyone's still in the stadium I think mm. they're I think what they're trying to do is say is this game going to be over by the time you know are people going to get out safely before this fucking right. thing gets back which is okay. which is maybe the thing that I think is sort of the, the sort of like uh, as much as I love this final sequence I feel like they're really stretching it here with how long it takes that blimp to get back and forth from its supposed like you know pit stop area which right. you would assume is like as close to the stadium as it could possibly be cuz why would you want it it seems to me that those right. those blimps don't move very fast so you wouldn't want yeah. it you wouldn't want to have to land it very far away from the thing if you need to like gas it up or whatever for the fuck you got to do Also there's the thing that they say you can't shoot it down because it's filled with helium or hydrogen what do they say it is yeah, hydrogen. And so what's going
1: to happen? Is it a hydrogen bomb in up. you I think it'll blow up, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, blowing it up in the sky seems better than it blowing up into the
1: stadium. Or else it'll just run around or fly around like, you know, when you let <laughs> yeah, the like air out of a <laughs> <Yeah>. balloon, right?
0: <laughs> that would have been great. That, with, that would with, be With awesome. Robert Shaw hanging on to the outside of it and then it sort of plops into the ocean well, and Shaw is he, like. At
1: one point towards the end, during that whole sequence, I got confused and I thought the helicopter that blows up was the one that Robert Shaw was in Mm -hmm. and I was shocked. And then immediately I was psyched because I was like, holy shit, this just turned into a great movie and now I have no idea what's going to happen next. Right. And I was so in and then they showed him that he was still alive and I was so bummed and I almost turned the fucking thing off.
0: Well, so there but for a
1: second, that was a great movie.
0: And so in the back and forth between Friedkin and Frankenheimer in their mid to late careers, that's where Friedkin really got the upper hand because I don't want to give away exactly what goes on at the end of To Live and Die in LA, but there's something that happens like ten minutes before the end of To Live and Die in LA that is like, What the fuck just happened in this movie? Yeah. 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 And it would have been like if Robert Shaw had had kicked the bucket.
1: Oh, it would've been so good, and then I don't know. And then I was like, "What? Well, everyone's going to die. This is going to be a great movie. There's no nobody to stop Bruce Dern now. This is going to be a massacre of of huge proportions."
0: Yeah. Well, I will say that this movie. I don't know. I don't know at what point action movies and big epic sort of adventure movies like this um did away with the denouement this is one of those movies mm. and i feel like it's maybe one of the first ones where like there's the climax the thing gets steered towards the ocean that's that, that's it like you never there's no nobody lands there's no there's no robert shaw shaking hands with fritz weaver uh right. at the end nothing it's just like the movie it's ends the, and i i like that i it, appreciate that
1: it's the hitchcock thing it's hitchcock Was of the the mind that all that stuff was unnecessary And people were just basically Getting their hats and their coats And they were leaving anyway So he cut all that shit out And, you know, he did it with North by Northwest Yeah, but he didn't seem to have figured it out for Psycho No, he decided not to do that with Psycho Psycho, there's that, you know They have to explain what happened But for most of his movies His movies just end like that And... It's shocking to see anybody other than psycho uh not psycho anybody other than Hitchcock do it. Like when Hitchcock does it I go, "Oh yeah, that's Hitchcock's thing." But when uh Frankenheimer does it I was like, "Whoa, that's weird."
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um Uh well we so you know, I don't need to go back to the plot. We've already given away too much of the plot. Who cares? This is what happens. Uh, you either di- you either dig this sort of uh, classic sort of cross cutting suspense stuff. That's the last twenty minutes of the movie. or You don't. You're either into well, I, it or you're not. And yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: this movie is kind of like a cross between the uh, what we were talking about the the political thriller and the disaster movie. You mm-hmm. know, uh, which which I know you like a lot. Um, no, I, but I, I, it's it, not that. I, I wouldn't say that. Okay, I thought you were a fan. It's okay. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a dig, no. I no, I, like no but I but
0: like I really would say that I'm not a I'm not a disaster movie fan per se. But I do have my favorites of the genre. Like I think Earthquake is like okay. that's where it's at, man. Whereas Towering Inferno, I'm like well, I this mean, movie when, sucks. <laughs>
1: right. When did Earthquake come out? Seventy four. Okay, so the Earthquake and Towering Inferno came out before this. Uh, so you know, there's spectacle on a par with that. And also I think they're really leaning on the Robert Shaw thing to like make people think Jaws as well.
0: Hmm. Yeah, maybe I think that, so this movie that I keep telling you to watch that you haven't seen called two minute warning came out the year before this. And it's the closest thing to this and it's doing, it's also riffing off the disaster movie, but it's, it's combining a disaster movie with a sniper movie. Whereas this Mm -hmm. is like a terrorist plot that's like a nameless, faceless sniper who you never get to know. You never even see his face. But he has set himself oh. up at the equivalent of a Super Bowl, and it's up to Charlton Heston. I think I've seen it. Oh, you have seen it?
1: Well, I've fuck seen you. Yeah.
0: I've been talking to you about it for yeah. months, and you'd be like, a two-minute warning. Ugh.
1: But when uh, you said it was faceless, when, you know, when it wasn't like a Target's thing, I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I think I have seen this.
0: But it's Charlton Heston and John Cassavetes, and talk about a fucking buddy yeah. buddy cop movie it's those wow. two guys well frank against it, this sniper
1: yeah and well, i frank will Denheim say blame
0: yes he did he blamed, <laughs> yes he does you blame
1: that movie for this movie's poor performance do you
0: buy that i do i mean i, I don't do. really but i mean i it is true that that movie came out the year before and was a total bust and so i think it, you know i'm i'm sure that's part of it i'm sure people were like i don't we already had this movie last year and nobody wanted to see it then. Why do we want to see it now? Um, yeah. But I will say that the thing that you are annoyed about at the end of this movie, which is the cross-cutting with the football game itself and it's like, why? What? How does that add suspense to it? I, I, I sort of see your point, especially as like a non-sports fan. Like It doesn't mean anything. The thing about Two Minute Warning is in the title, it's called Two Minute Warning. So right. even though even though there's not even like a ransom note or anything that the sniper leaves saying at the two minute warning, I'm going to kill everyone as the audience of the movie. Right. You're like, Oh shit's you know. going to go down when the, when the two morning warning sounds, that's when shit's really going to go down. Cause that's the name of this fucking movie. So right. there's this built in thing just because of the title. That you know? would make sense. Yeah.
1: You know, I said that this, uh, watching this on Amazon, it took me to parallax view. Mm-hmm. after parallax view that took me to the domino principle oh and fuck. i think you've seen this movie i, I right? just
0: watched that this week i did the same yeah. thing those yeah. these are the three movies we watched the same three movies this or you, did you watch clear and present danger this week uh no but oh, okay. you know
1: I, I keep it with me
0: <laughs> but always. yes i watched the domino principle i watched clear and present danger and i watched black sunday and I'd never seen The Domino Principle before But oh my god What a fucking piece of shit That movie is
1: Yeah I got no use For that movie At all uh, the, How many How awesome Did they think Those shots Of the helicopter were I mean yeah. it's like Alright we get it They're riding in a helicopter I'm not impressed Move on It just goes on And yeah that Not oh, a good movie But worth it The opening was great though
0: yeah, and but and worth it for Mickey Rooney in an extended scene in the prison cell playing with his chest hair. Gross. Like literally like rolling around in his fingers and turning it into like a pyramid. Fucking Mickey Maybe Rooney, man. Maybe
1: the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Oh my God. Fucking Bill for short. Fucking with his <laughs> chest hair. Ugh.
0: All right. Yeah. Well,
1: I don't. I don't see how we can
0: top no. that. No, Mickey Rooney's chest hair is a is a showstopper. You got,
1: a, you, got a, you got it. You got it. You got a New York Times review for this?
0: Oh, um, I I forgot to look, did, but I'm gonna look for it now. Didn't do you Vincent have some can have anything to I'm say sure about he did. this? I'm sure he did. <laughs> oh wait, this might be a review of the book. Fuck you. God damn it.
1: God damn it. Jim. Yeah, I, you know. I I read uh, Red Dragon and Bored Silly.
0: Oh, you're not a Thomas Harris fan at all?
1: Not really. I mean, I do like A Silence of the Lambs. It's a pretty compact book and probably the most uh, faithful movie adaptation ever of a book. I mean, it's like that book, they just made that book into that movie. It's crazy.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well... I could have a little talk with you about that. Okay. I think they almost do and the and the few things they cut out of the book break my heart because I think they add so much more to the story. They cut
1: They cut out of the movie or they cut out of the book?
0: They cut out of the movie. Good. When when Clarice one of the one of the girls who's kidnapped, maybe the one who's kidnapped for the whole last half of the movie that she's racing yeah. against the clock to save is 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 the daughter of a politician. Like a congresswoman or something like that. Yeah, right. And in the book, Clarice, like the the politician, has had enough of Clarice because she does she doesn't trust Cl- Clarice's theory or Clarice is wrong about something. Right. She fucks something up and she gets thrown off the case, and she gets she gets sent back to Quantico, and then something else happens all. and she gets pulled back in, and that that adds to me so much to the story it's so great that she gets thrown off the case and then gets sucked back into it I think because Lecter escapes or something and it does like,
1: seem it does seem in the movie like she's back in some way like maybe they cut that out and had shot it Have yes. you heard that yes okay. and
0: I've actually seen some of the footage because I think it's like a oh, wow. deleted scene on the on the blu-ray or something okay. and I really regret that they took that out of the finished version
1: yeah, it does feel like something is off. That, that makes sense.
0: Anyway, but otherwise, a great adaptation of, a, a I thought, a great book. Vincent Camby, uh, April 1st, 1977. Screen, Terror Over the Super Bowl is the, is the headline. The date is November 12th. We know because an opening credit card informs us of this fact, and during the rest of John Frankenheimer's Black Sunday, more cards are forever telling us dates. November 14th, November 17th, etc. As if to suggest that time is running out instead of just running on. The mm. film, which had a single showing at Lowe's State 1 last night, begins regular showings at the State and Tower East today. Black Sunday is screen is the screen adaptation of Thomas Harris' best-selling suspense novel, it starts in Beirut, Beirut, where members of the Black September, the Arab terrorist group, are plotting to dra- dramatize the Palestinian liberation cause by hitting Americans, quote, where it hurts, where they feel most safe. Their plan, as we come to learn, is to kidnap a friendly old Goodyear blimp, load it with high explosives and dart-like shrapnel, and send it putt-putting over the Miami Super Bowl <laughs> to assassinate the United States president and 79,999 other football fans. The question is not whether how is not whether they will succeed as much as how they will fail and at what last split second. Though Black Sunday is vastly superior to such junk movies as Airport 77, The Domino Principle and 2 Minute oh. Warning. Fuck you, Benson oh. Camby. It belongs to that same category of film, so involved with techniques and logistics that even when it generates some awe, it's never once surprising. Awe. Black Sunday is a Disneyland exhibit where people look real but are made out of rubber, activated by transistors. It's a superior kind of a contemporary film, making that has become much less involving and fun as its subjects have become more serious. And you can't get more serious in presidential assassination and terrorism on the scale threatened in Black Sunday. Why doesn't it work for me? I suspect it has to do with the constant awareness that the story is more important than anybody in it. The screenplay written by Ernest Lamont, Kenneth Ross, and Ivan Moffat has the efficient manner of something hammered out, as they say in Hollywood in a story conference. The characters don't motivate the drama in any real way. They are cut and shaped to fit it, and if the cast of Black Sunday were not so good, and if Mr. Frankenheimer were a less able director, the movie would be unendurably boring. The film moves to Beirut, to Los Angeles and Washington, then back to Los Angeles again and finally to Miami. Cutting between the activities of the principal plotters, Bruce Stern is a psychotic Vietnam veteran and Martha Keller as a Palestinian fanatic. And the Israeli intelligence officer, Robert Shaw, who has gotten wind of the plan during a commando raid on Black September headquarters in Beirut. Beirut. Why do I keep saying Beirut? We watch know. one side and then the other as if we were spectators at a ping pong game. Mr. Shaw brings to the role a mixture of tough resolve and weary skepticism that are as much his own contribution as the scripts. Mr. Dern slimmed down to skeletal proportions. I don't know, was Bruce Dern ever anything more I, than slim?
1: Yeah. Uh, no.
0: It is so convincing as the former prisoner of war who now flies Goodyear blimp that he effectively reminds us of Mr. Frankenheimer's best film, The Manchurian Candidate. Though The Manchurian Candidate was about brainwashing and politics, And Black Sunday is about blimps as much as anything else. (laughs) The the action sequences, including the climactic attack on the Super Bowl, where we recognize a president who looks very much like Jimmy Carter, I don't remember that, are well staged without being especially convincing. The film's best sequence has nothing to do with the action. It's the quiet recollection of Mr. Dern of his feelings when, as a prisoner of war... He received a snapshot of his wife and children and immediately realized that his wife had taken a lover. That is a great little monologue. Who took the picture? Yeah. Nice. Another good Scott Lucas impression. Here's oh, thank you. Yeah. Miss um, uh, Keller has some difficulty portraying a Palestinian terrorist, looking as she does as beautiful and healthy and uncomplicated as a California surfer.
1: I don't I know don't, about that.
0: Yeah, no, I don't fucking know. Mm-mm. No, she's got some serious eyeliner thing happening that's not California surfer at all.
1: Yeah, I barely recognize her from Marathon, man. Yeah.
0: She also shares a speech problem with the young Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> <laughs> Beirut is Beewoot and arranged is awanged, while lacking Dietrich's camp majesty. Maybe a,
1: that's why you have a problem with Beirut.
0: Maybe. And Marlena. Yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm sympathetic to Martha Keller, who is still alive, by the way. Martha Keller still kicking.
1: I thought you said Mar- Marlene Danger. Uh, yeah. No. Yep, she's not good. still alive,
0: though. No. No, she's not. Uh, and then he just ends the review by saying it's about blimps. In fact, maybe that's the headline, but they left it for the bot. I don't know what the New York Times is doing with this fucking thing. Anyway, there you go. New York Times.
1: I don't completely disagree with Mr. Canby on that one. I, I can see. Uh, what he's saying And he says it With some panache So I I, I don't hate Hate that review uh,
0: I I don't hate it I disagree I like the movie A lot more than he did And I like it more Than you did But I do But I do take exception To this idea And this is a sort of A constant refrain In the New York Times In the 70s Where Canby And the other critics Are constantly talking About the new style Of filmmaking That's right. this sort of Made for You know Pre-digested junk That's like all Cookie cutter I mean, they had no idea what was coming. I mean, f- right. to be in the 70s and be talking about even this movie in a way that, that, that makes it sound like, where were the, where are the good old days? Dude, just wait 10 years, and then let me hear what you have to say about Black Sea. Right, 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 right,
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. But, all right, so to sum it up, not as good as Parallax
0: View, right? Or Two Minute Warning, but I still think a minor a minor action... Uh, maybe not a classic, but I mean, it. Yeah, I think it's a good movie and, and, a, and an influential movie. I think it really set the stage for, and I'm not saying the, the things that it influenced are any good, but there's a lot of shit floating around there that I don't think, uh, that I think got its template from this movie, and and I guess from the book, Thomas Harris. I mean, look, you know, between this and fucking... The, the Lector stuff. Thomas Harris is like responsible for three quarters of popular entertainment these days.
1: You mean the uh, cookie cutter stuff that can be
0: loved so much? I mean, all the serial killer stuff. And, you know. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I like silence of the lambs but i don't love silence of the lambs and i've tried you know i i I don't know there's something about the the whole uh i i i kind of dig harris's plotting but but um i don't know i just maybe i should read this book i don't think i ever will but i'm maybe i'll
0: have fun with it i'm gonna i'm gonna come clean about something which is hard to admit um I'm not that big. I'm not a big Jonathan Demi guy, and honestly, I'll take Silence of the Lambs over most of his other films that I think Demi fans adore. I'll tell you a movie that I have never been a fan of that everyone I know thinks is like the greatest fucking thing ever, and I'm just like, don't
1: say something wild,
0: something wild, dude.
1: Something wild is great.
0: I'll tell you what. You know how you you know how you find like doppelganger movies, and I don't want to get into this other big one that I have, and not doppelganger, but like they sort of came out around the same time, and I'm like, wait, this is the movie everyone should be loving and raving over Mm. and is the greatest thing ever. Not this other fucking thing. After Hours? No, I love After Hours. I thought you were going to talk about the Doppelganger movie to... To Something something wild. Wild? No. Yeah. Miami Blues.
1: Oh, great movie. Great movie. Miami
0: Blues, to me, is everything that everyone loves about Something Wild, but to me, like a million times better and it it it's not it's clearly not it's not the same plot at all but there's this i don't know something about this kind of like uh anarchic shocking yeah. shock some shocking violence in the midst of something that's like uh mostly played for but, laughs
1: yeah but like there it's not as shocking uh in in Miami blues and Miami blues is later Right, Miami I Blues is later than. I don't that, know uh, about that. I think Miami Blues is at least the end of the 80s, if not the beginning of the 90s.
0: Something Wild is 86, and right. Miami Blues is 90. Yeah, so four years later. Yes. I don't know why I have uh, them in my head then, as, uh, as like the yeah uh, as my I mean, argument against. But the, the, there's a thing
1: like you don't expect Something Wild to get as dark as it does you just you just don't and 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 when when it happens you're kind of like whoa this movie really does take a turn and that's all probably thanks to Ray Liotta but for whatever reason it really takes a turn
0: and Um, and I don't have anything against that in fact I liked that part of the movie very much I appreciate the turn that it takes my problem is The first 20 minutes of something wild leave me so fucking cold. I don't care about either one of them. I'm not into them as a couple. The way they meet meet cute is so sloppy and stupid to me that it's just like, I don't (laughs) care. I'm not going on this journey with them. I'm not buying any of the circumstances. Like the classic screwball comedies. And to me, Bringing Up Baby is maybe the best movie ever made. Certainly my favorite comedy. You are so locked into the circumstances and the way they meet cute and the way they get stuck in this thing together that like there's no way out. You're like I'm in this thing from, from minute two. I'm like yes, all I want to do is watch Catherine Hepburn and, and 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 Cary Grant uh, have this have this adventure together. Something wild, you know. It's 20 minutes at least before I'm like okay, I guess I can. I guess I can. I guess I can make it through this with these two, and then Ray Liotta comes and it's like, yeah. Then it's good, but, but uh, to me, something wild, it doesn't sell me in the opening, and it needs to. I think that's my problem with it.
1: I don't know. I think the way, the way those two work and all that stuff, I, uh, I don't know. It it totally works for me. I mean, yeah. I mean, you maybe you got a point. Maybe
0: I don't know. And yeah. listen, I'm the only one who I've ever said that to. Who you know, nobody else ever says, "Oh yeah, right." Like you're the closest who's ever said, "Maybe you have a point." Like I, nobody else I talk to this movie about ever says you have a point. Um, I mean,
1: there's a lot of uh, you know. I don't want to say it's funky, but there's a lot of stuff that, that's going on, and you're kind of like, you know, what what is. It? what is the tone of this movie yeah and it starts and it's very colorful and it's it's all and there's some
0: shitty kind of like reggae music at the beginning right. I, right. hate that. I hate well, that
1: well that world type of music yeah. i mean yes uh, you know i mean i don't know how, how how what you think of stop making sense i happen to think it's maybe the best concert movie ever made i love it it's fantastic but, so like Jonathan Demme, it doesn't surprise me that he's into that kind of stuff, but, but there's some of that, but, but then there's also some new wave uh, type of things going on. And I think all that kind of stuff helps the, the Ray Liotta stuff be that more shocking. So it's not necessarily my cup of tea, but when I see the way it all works, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, which is why it's more shocking than something like, um, uh, Miami Blues which is a great movie too you know I I dig Miami Blues in the same way that you know I dig Out of Sight you know like Out of Sight is a little less out of control than Miami Blues probably right. a lot less out of control but but you know clearly Soderbergh is a George Armitage fan
0: yeah and, and, and that's my thing give me give me George Armitage and the five movies he made over like 40 years over the entire oeuvre of like demi or um uh who i don't know who else we were just talking about but
1: i was just listening to something tarantino was talking about this and there was some george armitage yeah movie. Like a tv
0: movie about like a race race car or something or other which i've never seen it's like the one armitage movie i haven't seen
1: yeah he was just talking about it he's like he i think george armitage is like what people think that john jonathan demi was oh like. yeah so, maybe he does say so that. You, you're in good. You're in good company.
0: There you go. Like okay. Like I think I, I hear what you're saying about something wild, and I I think it's true. I think that like on paper and the, theoretically, as a way to build a film and the concept behind something wild and the turn that it takes, and even in execution, the actual turn itself are great. I just think watching it, I never get the pleasure out of it, or the shock, or the excitement that I want to. And you
1: like Married to the Mob?
0: No. And okay. uh, I mean, I haven't seen it since it came out. I think I probably liked it when it came out, but I've never thought to watch it again. And and Matthew Modine
1: has yeah. gotten so weird <laughs> to me as an actor that I
0: can't go back and yeah. enjoy. Like I can't watch Birdie, which I remember loving oh, wow. when I it seen came that out forever. But. Right, exactly. And I'm sort of scared to because I'm like, and this is not going to be good. But um, uh, but uh, you know, there's nothing like I, I could watch. I could watch the Alec Baldwin haiku scene. In um, Miami Blues, I'll, I'll watch that a hundred times before I ever want to go watch any of these other movies again. Just that scene where he steals the—he's stealing a steak from the neighbor's apartment, and he's writing a haiku about it because she's got a, she's working on a class project or something where she's like she's like teaching herself haikus. I can't remember. I just love yeah, her so yeah. much. I to me, there's nothing Jennifer Jason Leigh in a movie in that time period. You can't go wrong. The fucking The Hitcher. I think one of the great fucking thrillers of all time, and especially her and what happens to her in, a film, in that film. Talk about right. a shocking twist, man. wow we. pretty good, yeah. Pretty good. Um, that yeah, and Miami dude, Blues. I'm like, watch
1: The Hitcher and Miami Blues. I'm
0: going to go and see if
1: those are playing somewhere. I'm going to
0: check those out. Yeah, Jennifer. I wrote a song called Jennifer Jason Lee at some point around that time.
1: Of course you did.
0: Well, listen, you know, we can't all write about Are you AJ's watching
1: so uh, that new Kate Winslet show on HBO?
0: Not yet, because I read a bad review. The first thing I saw about it was like, this is no good. So I f- 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 uh, kind of... All right,
1: well, I think it's pretty great. Um,
0: good. Okay, well, then I will check it out.
1: It's very rare that I don't finish an HBO show.
0: All right. Well, now we're at 210. God damn it. Well, we're not. This, this last half hour, I think, was just us talking. Actually, yeah, this <laughs> yes.